Hello and welcome to Secret Knowledge Volume 1. Tonight I'm joined by Philip. I'll leave his last name out for now. You'll see why later. <laughs> for a little talk about poltergeist. After that we'll have an interview with uh, Mr. Bobby Creech, member of the Ordo Templi Orentist and a Thelemite. The uh, this is the first episode, and I didn't, uh, you know, fulfill my complete duties as I didn't completely understand them. So there's some editing that should have been done that has not been done yet in this episode. Hopefully in the future, if anyone ever listens to this, it'll get a little bit better and a little bit better, and not long from now, it'll be perfect. Anyway, I'm your host, Dana, and welcome to Secret Knowledge, the podcast. Alright, hello everybody. Welcome to Secret Knowledge. I'm Dana, and I am joined tonight by Philip Goulet. Did I say that right? DA. <laughs> it's uh, don't worry about it. Nobody gets it right in the first time. What what how do you say it right again? DA. GA. Wow. That's it. That's wow, it. Okay. It's so Francais. You actually you had actually corrected me about that before and I was pretty confident that I was getting it right. <laughs> Oh well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I killed your confidence, dude. No, no problem. No problem. So, uh, me and uh, me and Philip have met before one time briefly in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I'll let you guys know, uh, Mr. Philip Gier is a bit of an intimidating individual, to say the least. In real I life. am. You are. <laughs> yeah. So tonight we're gonna have a little fun, and we're gonna talk about some poltergeists. Yep. So, as if, as if, apparently there wasn't uh, enough fear factor before. With uh, my intimidating presence, we're throwing in a few others as well. Yeah, I guess. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, we intimidate the crap out of everybody. Okay, well that's <laughs> okay. All Let's right, get so to it. We're gonna start with a couple little questions for you. Okay. What do you do professionally? Professionally, um, so for a couple of years now, I've been a um, licensed psychotherapist um, in the state of Maryland. I got my degree in pastoral psychotherapy, so along with um, myself as a psychotherapist in the traditional sense, um, there's also a heavy theological aspect that I'm able to incorporate into my, I guess, treatment plans as well. Um, I've always had a, a, a deep fascination with ghosts, spirits, hauntings, the paranormal, spirituality, religion. For me, it all kind of went together. Um, I think what started it was the movie Ghostbusters. Um, when I was a, when I was a kid, a couple of friends of mine would go around a local library with like wooden tools that we assembled together as kind of like mock, uh, Ghostbusters equipment, kind of scanning the books and, you know, doing all that. Um, I think that, I think the movie Ghostbusters is what started it for me. And when I was in college, I majored in psychology because I was something I was good at. And I, I didn't know that there was a such thing as pastoral psychotherapy until a few years after I graduated. But once I found out about it, I kept learning about it. And the more I realized it kind of fit in with what I was already good at and what I was already interested in. So I thought, okay, well, this seems to be the next step. And that program took about six years for me to finish and um so yeah like i said along with myself as a 
psychotherapist. Um, I'm not, I'm not considered clergy, but I can kind of, I can discuss religion with my clients. Okay, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna swap up the order of these questions real quick, and I have an extra question to add about what you just said. Okay. So, uh, like when I went to school, my dream was always to be a parapsychologist mm-hmm. because of the Ghostbusters, and I yep. can tell pretty much the exact same story you just did with only slight differences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, what the pastoral part? Mm-hmm. What what does that mean? Um. Okay, well, maybe a better question would be, to, to, before we even get to that, is what religion are you? What, or would you consider yourself, or do you even call your field that, you know, when a client comes and they ask what you are, what, what, would, what would be the comfortable thing to say? Well, I mean, the comfortable thing for me to say would be the truth, and that's Unitarian Universalist. Oh. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a walk of faith that, acknowledges and embodies all other walks of faith as well. Um, We have aspects of Christianity. We have aspects of Judaism, Buddhism, even Wiccan. Um, It's not like a blender or a tossed salad of all different kinds. We acknowledge that no single religion can possibly contain that cosmic consciousness. So the least we could do is acknowledge that they're all they're all paths to get home. So uh, I, I had no clue what the answer to that question was previously. I actually grew up with a friend of mine whose parents were, were the same. Mm-hmm. So, were uh, they were both? They were Unitarian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, they were really awesome people. And I've always been super interested in religion. That's actually what I ended up going to school for was just religious studies. Mm-hmm. You know, a uh, completely pointless thing to go to school for. <laughs> well, it it depends on what point you were looking for, you know. Um, a, a degree in religious studies, you know, you may not be able to get, you know, the CEO of Wall Street kind of <laughs> level job. If if you were to seek enlightenment, that's one of the ways to go for it. That's what I was going for, just more enlightenment. And I was I was in the army at the time, and kind of being forced to go to school. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do something that I'm really interested in and just not care because I'm in the Army. I've already got a job. Yep. There you go. So that's awesome. Um, did you stay with him? With what? You, did you get a degree in religious studies? Uh, no, I never finished. <laughs> I, I got, you know, uh, halfway through-ish, depending on mm-hmm. how you want to see it, and then changed to general studies because I realized I was getting out and should probably do something that I could do something with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no. <laughs> okay, but well. I've taken a lot of classes. Um, it's your path. Yeah, go ahead. It's your path? Yeah. How do you want to walk it? So, what is, how do you personally, what are your personal feelings on belief in the paranormal, the occult, the supernatural, things like that? What I've, what I've learned from paranormalism and what I've learned from religion is that it's almost like um, paranormalism is like taking religion and putting it a magnifying glass over it, okay? So if you go to church, you hear about words that were may have been spoken millennia ago, people that haven't lived in thousands of years. We talk about a kingdom of heaven that may not be any specific place, but 
if it is a specific place, it's very far from here. So there is, um, uh, and this is just my take on it, that with a lot of religion, there's a, an aspect of distance, um, whether it's distance by space or by time. And that, okay, if that's what you're looking for, fine. Um, but a lot of, the reason why a lot of people turn to religion is for not just the knowledge of where we are, where we're from and where we're going, but also that, that comfort it can bring in the present. And that's where paranormalism comes in, because when I learn about it, it's not just, you know, ancient castles that are haunted, but it can also be the house next door. It could also be your house. Um, the, the, the figures that are shrouded in this mystery, they're not apostles that lived thousands of years ago. It could be a relative that recently passed. It could be a pet. It could be a, a friend. So whereas religion can certainly help with a cosmic level of understanding, paranormalism is uh, much more up close, much more personal, and it's something that you can connect with. So would you say you believe in ghosts? Oh, absolutely. How about aliens? Um, well, I mean, we can save that for another, for another <laughs> right, episode. Right. Well, I mean, I certainly think that the, the odds of us being alone in the world um, are, of us being alone in the universe, are not nearly as favorable as they would be if there were others. To, to um, save that for another episode, I thought you would say yes. Well, I would, yeah, I'm saying yes now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, whether or not they're here, they exist at this very time, or not yet, or when extinct millions of years ago. You know, the, the universe is uh, almost 14, 13, 14 billion years old, and the entire lifespan of the Earth itself is just the blink of an eye. So for the two civilizations to exist at the same time, regardless of where we lie in the cosmos, it would have to be, it would require quite the timing. Right. So if we happen to be the only ones in the universe, it doesn't mean that that's always been the case, and it doesn't mean it's always going to be the case. Um, remember, when you're talking about the cosmos, it's not just the grand scale of, of distance, but also time. Um, yeah. So, um, I, I kind of feel like I've almost even covered the last question there, but, uh, do you feel what you do is compatible with your religious beliefs? Hmm. Well, it's certainly not incompatible. Right. Um, I'm, um... Yeah, that, that, that brings up a, that question's a little hard. Um, like I said, I don't know by any means every, anything deep or even beyond the surface level of your religion but mm -hmm. I didn't know what your answer was going to be, and that wasn't the answer that I was exactly expecting you to give. So I don't think it's inc incompatible, and I'm still trying to digest it. And what what I have experienced in the way that I discuss ghosts and hauntings with any of my clients in the in the the therapy practice, uh, not to say I I bring this up, but for my clients that are struggling with grief, um, it has brought to them an enormous sense of comfort and has this thus spurred a huge growth in them when we talk about their loved ones in much closer terms rather than saying well they're in a they're in a better place right now or they're up in heaven i don't know how far away it is i don't know where it is but you know i 
they're there, so they're not here anymore, when really that tends not to be the case. When someone dies, there is the, there is the choice of leaving and crossing over, but a lot of people don't because they prefer to stay at least for a little while to be with their loved ones, to be with the places that they're familiar with and the people that they're familiar with, and to try to offer as much comfort as they can. One of the reasons why grieving can be as hard as it is for the individuals left behind is that grief causes a lot of psychological noise. It's just, it's a painfully deafening process. Um, and when we have so much noise in our minds, it's so hard to be able to hear them and to be able to sense them. We're convinced that they're gone. It's even in our language, they're gone. And with that language comes a, a it's like you're, you're... Just lost you. Oh, okay, we're back. Oh. Did I cut out? Yeah, I lost about 10 seconds there. What was the last thing you heard? Um, hold on. Dang, just freaked out. There we go. Yeah. We're back. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Uh, what was the last thing you heard me say? Uh, I don't remember. Just go back a few seconds of what you think was a okay. few seconds ago. Okay. And All right, let me know when I can start. Go ahead. Um... When we, when we have a loved one that has passed, we, we hear terms such as, they're gone. And after a while, when you hear terms like this and, and think in terms like this, that's going to define how you perceive your reality. Um, you're going to perceive a world where they are not here anymore when in actuality they are. And the pain of grief causes so much noise that if they're still with us, we can't really sense them. And they try to talk to us, but there's too much interference. Think of it like, like a lot of static electricity coming in a radio. It's so loud and it drowns out every, everything else. I don't know if you, uh, do you know about uh, vibrations? I, yep. It's pretty much the exact same thing you're, you're saying right now, but another way that I've heard it explained is that they're existing at a different vibrational frequency. So they're there, and the, the, the frequencies can almost touch, and they can almost be there together, but they're vibrating at a slightly different resonance that's keeping them slightly separate. Right. And also consider the, the influence that emotions can have on our own vibrational frequency. Pain and sadness is one of the lower ones. So they're operating on a higher frequency than us, and then we can't help but bring ourselves down even lower through what emotions that we have, which is natural. But if we stay in that, if we stay in that lower vibrational frequency, that can lead to things like clinical depressive disorder, complicated grief disorder, um, so yeah, so it's I'm surprised that you knew about that. It's nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you started telling me the stuff you know about, I was like, oh my god, I've never met anybody else who knows the, <laughs> you know, 
things along the same line, like legitimately. It's, it's kind of crazy. Well, and now you're helping other people to learn about it as well yeah. through your show. That, um, that's kind of the point. <laughs> wonderful. wonderful. Um, I almost forgot what the what the the question was, but I kind of remembered. It's the I think where the whole thing I was going with this is that um, it has been very comforting to my clients to have a discussion where their loved one is still with them. What they have told me is that now they start talking to them again, um, even just talking out loud to an empty room. Um, and that has helped them accomplish so much therapeutic growth. Just having discussions that acknowledge that their loved ones are still with them as opposed to they've gone to a better place, you know? And I'm not promoting paranormalism at the expense of religion. There are two different ways to see it and whichever one works best for someone or both or neither. It works for you, it works for you. You know, in all honesty, I think you are probably the closest thing to a real life Ghostbuster possible. <laughs> I don't really bust them. Right, I'm not there to. But uh, real life, you know, in real life, you can't really bust ghosts. But if you had to, like, boil the Ghostbusters down to, like, actual reality, I think what you do is about as close as you can get. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> that's that's, thank that's, you that's so... really awesome. There was, um, well, you know, Dan Aykroyd's father was, had in, was a, a paranormal investigator, mm -hmm. and that was what started his fascination with spiritualism, the occult, etc. And once you know these terms, you go back and watch the movies, they're actually using real terms. Yeah. Um, what's even, um, uh, I'm going to take a slight detour, but there was, um, you know, remember that show, um, Celebrity Ghost Stories? I think it was on bi Biography. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I watched, I didn't watch all of it, but I, I watched several episodes of it. All right, well, did you see did you see the episode with Beverly D'Angelo? I think I might have. Okay. Um, she was staying in a house that um, had a radio that kept not only putting on by itself, but that was always playing jazz music. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you remember? Yeah, yeah, I definitely yeah. saw that episode. I don't remember everything about it, but I definitely remember that I did see that one. Well, she's, it had happened over and over again. And she started talking to a friend of hers who had sold her that house. And this, her, her ghost story takes place, I think, in around the year 1990 or sometime in the late or in the early 90s. And um, when she was talking to a friend who had sold her the house, um, she said her friend had said that since uh, she didn't really want to tell her about the ghosts in the house, especially since they aren't threatening. That, but there is something I should tell you is that that was the house that Dan Aykroyd was living in when he was writing Ghostbusters. Yeah. So I just thought that was so that was so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, in a, a strange way, I guess the Ghostbusters kind of started everything for me too, in in the mm -hmm. most minor way possible, and then splintering off into Dan Aykroyd, who I think introduced me to the Crystal Skulls long before yep. the vodka. Yep. <laughs> And getting into that and in search of, I remember the in search of episode with Leonard Nimoy, with Leonard yeah. Nimoy about the crystal skulls, and I was like, oh my god, that's that Dan Aykroyd stuff. Yep, yep. It's, I mean, 
for me, what was interesting is just that it was, it's kind of a science, but with something that you can't sense, you know, with, with history, you have, you have the artifacts, you have the relics and the ruins, um, with biology, you have the living cells with chemistry, you have the vials and other things. I'm sure there's more to chemistry than just vials, <laughs> but what I know, what, what really hooked me about, you know, learning about ghosts was that there was such an intriguing aspect of mystery. It's like, you're right there in front of me and yet not. It's like the connection between this world and another world. That's the, you know, on the Venn diagram, you have the, this circle and the other circle and religion, spirituality, paranormalism is that one part where both circles overlap. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, uh, in a large way, they're kind of, they're a separate thing. They're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they both kind of were bred from each other. You know, like the uh, the basis of religion and the basis of spirituality can be a separate and opposite thing, but they couldn't exist without the other, even if they don't agree with each other. Mm -hmm. And they're both different ways for us to learn about ourselves and to learn about our own souls. Right. And to provide some comfort. Because, well, to go back to your aliens question, at this point, for all we know, we are alone in the universe. And being alone in the dark is frightening. Right. And what you seek the most when you're frightened is some comfort. And that's where religion comes in. It does serve a need of the ease of comfort, but it also helps us understand ourselves in a larger context. I'm biting my tongue on so many wormholes we could go down. <laughs> well, just you can take. Feel free to take the next one. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, because man, I'm not kidding. Like almost every sentence you say, I have like five questions and things I want to say about it. Awesome. Let's just let's just go into poltergeist. Okay. Okay. So, so you would you would ask me the question about about the poltergeist earlier? Could you? Remind me again. Oh, that's next. First, oh, okay. Okay. First, we're just gonna give a little basic. What is a poltergeist thing? Mm -hmm. Poltergeist is a German word, which pretty much boils down to noisy ghost or noisy spirit. Polter being noisy, I guess, and geist being ghost. Mm -hmm. uh, poltergeist can be connected to a person or a place or things. Um, it's not exactly the same as a ghost haunting, which will be in a different episode, but then you got your whole residual and active and all that. It's, that's a little bit of a separate thing from a poltergeist. Poltergeist is more of a tied-down thing that's directly affecting a object or an object or a person. Object, a person, or a location. Or location, right. It's um, more a yeah, to describe the type of activity that's going on rather than the type of entity who's behind it. Right, right, right. Um, uh, there's lots of theories on what can cause a poltergeist, mm -hmm. which is leading us to that, that next big question, which the one part here that isn't actually in the question that I personally feel is probably the actual cause of poltergeist is a person 
that mm -hmm. does not have to actually have anything to do with anything spiritual or outside, but it would lead to telepathy and telekinesis and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, do you think there is a big difference between a poltergeist, a ghost, and a demon? Well, let me ask you, what is your understanding of a demon? What I would personally, if you want to ask, for me to personally classify what I think is a demon, mm -hmm. a demon would be an elemental creature, type of creature. It would be a overwhelming darkness. It would be a just an evil entity of some sort that doesn't exist in normal reality, I think would mm -hmm. be kind of my rundown of it. Mm -hmm. And you? When we... I think when we use words like demonic, evil, and malevolent, right. uh, we may, it, I think it's possible we might be hitting the panic button. Um, when we're dealing with someone who is in the room with us and we can't see, hear, or otherwise perceive with our five primary senses, that's when our fear instinct kicks in. And fear is very imaginative. It's what fuels anxiety, it's what fuels nightmares, and it also, fear has a habit of jumping to the worst case scenario. Um, and if there is anyone listening who is or has dealt with some level of activity that they would consider demonic, I would just ask that person to see if it's possible to step back from the fear and re-examine what what had happened, what the experience was. And let, let me, if it's okay with you, I just want to give an example. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, two, no, 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 two, one personal, one hypothetical. So to, um, there was um, um, a long time ago, I saw a documentary with um, a woman who was doing an EVP session, EVP being electronic voice phenomenon, which is you're able to capture very faint voices on a tape recorder or digital voice recorder that you may not have been able to hear with the regular ear. So this woman was doing an EVP session and she went into a room and was asking for a specific person that is so-and-so here with us, can he speak into this microphone? A couple of minutes later, stops the recorder, plays it back, <clears throat> and she heard herself say on the voice, on the, the tape recorder, she said, we're looking for so-and-so, is he here? And the, they heard two words on the voice recorder that came from no one there. And the two words were, get out. Okay. So, Dane, let me ask you, just with that specific context, if you were in that situation, if you heard a voice say, get out, what would be your emotional response? Oh, man, like in all reality, uh, that's, that's, that's a long... I don't. I'm not the biggest fan of EVPs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I kind of feel like most EVPs are. That's a whole episode there on EVPs. Of... Well, let's take out the EVPs. What if you were in a room by yourself and you asked to speak with someone and you heard? Yeah, actually get heard out. it. Yeah, actually heard mm -hmm. it in real life. Yeah. Oh man, that is uh, that is a you... hard question to say answer. Um, I, I would let's... say I would be fifty-fifty. Okay. I'd be 50-50 between ghost or demon. Okay. Is it a residual thing? Just repeating something that it repeated before that is being held 
in the, the, the nature, the whatever, you, the molecules, however you want to say it, just being held in the area and it's just, it's just repeating itself and not an intelligent thing. Is it an actual intelligent thing? Because that, that get out, that could be positive or negative. That could be somebody trying to help you or somebody trying to threaten you. There you go. That's it. Right, it right. Can, and it can be helpful, too. When this woman heard the words get out on her recorder, her response was, we came into the room looking for someone, looking for a specific person. This voice says, get out, okay? We're in the wrong room. Right. One way or the other, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> yeah. So you can hear the phrase get out, and it could be interpreted as a threat or as a helpful bit of advice. But if you are scared shitless, which one are you going to go for? I mean, a regular person, I'm going to say they're going to go for it's evil and, I'm, you know, and something's threatening me. Oh. Personally, I'm going to sit there for a while, probably longer than I should, considering the options. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you can see, at least in this, through this hypothetical, that if a person is afraid, they're going to interpret things differently and they're going to make much different decisions than they would if they weren't afraid or if they were comforted. And when we're afraid, that's when the more extreme terms come in, like evil devil, demon, malevolence, etc. So, like I said, take yourself back to that original event and just try to reassess it without fear. Right. And what the other thing I was going to tell you is, and this is actually the, the kind of the hypothetical, so it's not based on any experience, but um, imagine if you heard the words, <clears throat> I love you spoken by the person you would love to hear it from the most, okay? Whether it's husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, mother, father, child, whatever. Whoever brings the most joy, just to hear the phrase, I love you, okay? That is going to trigger a very specific emotional response. Now, let's take the same words, the same tone, and the same intention. Only this time, give whoever's speaking it, give them one of those trait mics that they give on smokers. Mm -hmm. Okay? And now, imagine how it would sound, and imagine the, the emotional response it would create. Would it be identical to the one before? Yeah, I mean, again, I gotta go with regular person and myself. I'm gonna say mm -hmm. a regular person is gonna be the automatic opposite response but personally right. if i got that response i think i would i would treat it the exact same way because i would be like yeah just because it said that doesn't mean it's not evil <laughs> there you go you see when you when you remove fear from a situation you're able to interpret things in two different ways and it's not just it's not just fear when we talk i mean even in the example with the person with the trait mic I mean, there's also a level of, there's also hints of sadness. There's also a certain level of instinctive disgust that comes with it. Um, but when you compare those two experiences, hold them side by side, it is not that much of a stretch of the imagination to imagine that the two of them would, would trigger their unique emotional responses in people hearing that. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And you can also see how people may be likelier to label one as demonic as opposed to the other. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So now, with all of that being said, which I think I went into a little bit, I think I went into a little bit longer than I thought I was going to, but um, if someone says that they have an experience with a demonic entity, I would ask the person, okay, what happened? Um, and then wonder, you know, try to unpack any kind of baggage that came, that is with it. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the things you had asked me before or that we, that we were going to go into is, is the different types of paranormal activity. Um, when we think of a poltergeist, we think of someone or something that's causing some type of noise or disturbance, um, doors slamming, books getting knocked off of shelves, um, radios getting turned on, pots and pans. Lost you. Let me know when you start it up again. All right, go. What's with the noise in Noisy Spirit? And again, I'm going to ask to put you in a, in a hypothetical. Um, if you were, if you woke up in a different country, you don't know how you got there, you don't know where you are, you don't know anyone there, and you don't speak the language, and you don't understand the language. I've been there in reality. It's a crazy, were you a crazy situation. It, were you afraid when you, when that first, like, holy shit, what the hell's going on here? So when that first kicked the, the first place, I, I joined the army, right? So I went through training and everything, and they immediately sent me to South Korea. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you leave base, I mean, you know, I, I wasn't super young, but I was still a pretty young person, and I only know the South, you know what I mean? Other than a couple of vacations, I'd never left Georgia, or the immediate area anyway. All of a sudden, I'm in South Korea, and I'm on the streets of South Korea, and you look at a street sign, and... You can't even, no matter what you do, you can't interpret what that could possibly mean. Someone says what? something to you, and you're, it's just 100% foreign. I never heard the Korean language spoken in my life. What if you didn't even know where you were? It wasn't far from that, but it, I, I, there is a difference. I did technically know where I was, but there were times, you know what I mean, just being thrown over mm -hmm. there that you're just like, what in the world is, where am I? I'm illiterate. I can't speak to anyone. And now imagine if no one could see you or hear you. Right. When that happens, when everything we know about communication no longer applies, you're going to have to get creative. Right. And if you're trying to communicate with someone, even if you're right there, even if you're screaming in their face, I'm right here, if that's not working, you're gonna. You may try something else. Knocking. <laughs> what? Knocking. Knocking. Yeah. Right. Or or. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a beautiful thing you just said that I can't fully say I've ever really considered it in that those terms that you just said that that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um. So um. Anyway, I think the difference. I guess to go back to your original question, I think the difference between. Um, a poltergeist and a or ghost and a, and a demon has to do more with how the presence is interpreted rather than the, what the presence truly is. Um, so that was the <clears throat> overtly very lengthy <laughs> response.
Right. Mm. You made some uh, amazing points in there that I really love. I like to think I speak words good sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What was it? Any wormholes? Oh, man. So many. So many. And every one of them I could get several hours out of you with, mm -hmm. I know for a fact. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to avoid them because they're, oh, man, just there are whole other episodes of things that I would love to know about. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, let them let them pop up as they do. Yeah. Well, from that, let's go into the Einfield haunting. Enfield, sorry, not German, Filled. British. Yes, yes. <laughs> Enfield. Of which, which I have not yet seen all of the Conjuring two. Uh, I'm gonna say it could not have much less to actually do with it. <laughs> Okay. Okay. That's good to know. I think I got about 20 minutes in and I got distracted. Like, I'm not saying that it's not based on it in a way, but it really couldn't have much less to really do with it. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, let's just ignore that even being a movie because it really doesn't okay. matter. <laughs> Fine with me. What do you know of Enfield? Well, it's uh, Enfield which was a question that I had to start with, is a area of North London. Mm -hmm. I guess it's like a county, maybe? I'm yeah. not, not from Europe. I'm not super... I've never been to England at all. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming I, it's a county, is what I would it's say. It's like, yeah, one of the boroughs of North yeah, London. right. So the, uh, the strange activity seemed to center around the daughter of Peggy Harper. Mm-hmm. Um, man... There's, there's a lot. I'm trying to narrow it down as best I can. Janet and her 11-year-old brother Pete, aged... Mm -hmm. What? Janet, aged 11. There's a comma mm -hmm. there that I missed. And her brother Pete, aged 10, mm -hmm. complained that their beds were jolting up and down and going all funny. As soon as Miss Harper got to the room, the movements had stopped. As far as she was concerned, the kids were making it up. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the only quote I'm going to directly read. There were there were bumps. There was uh, the, the normal poltergeist activity of things flying off the wall, things flying across mm -hmm. the room. There was levitation right. involved. There, uh, I think, I think what it seems like everything else focuses on are the voices. Mm -hmm. There's actual recordings of the supposed yes. ghost voices. Yes, and, which was coming through Janet. Right, right. And then there's the world famous picture. Yes, yes, that one, I know. Oh, man, I, that picture. Of I, that. I, I have issues with that, with that picture. I have issues with a couple of different parts of it, and I'm not yet convinced one way or the other. I think that there's a lot of compelling uh, arguments either way. Um, it was eventually revealed that Janet was behind some of it. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that she was responsible for all of it. And she actually did say that there was some stuff that she wasn't doing. Um, about the voice, um, the voice was supposed that the voice of a ghost named Bill, who had lived, I think, in that house um, several decades before, um, and which was eventually confirmed. Um, 
the voice was coming through and it was uh i can only do it for a few seconds and i'm gonna i'm gonna lean in as i do it because it's gonna have to be <laughs> soft um <clears throat> hang on <clears throat> imagine if you put your voice like this but if you started making your voice talk like this you know think of it like a really really deep batman um <laughs> couldn't you can do that comfortably for just a few seconds. Um, if you do that voice for a conversation that lasts one hour, we're talking about losing your voice for about two to three weeks. And if you do it for three hours, we're then talking about permanent vocal damage. Um, that and there's also the physical discomfort that comes from doing that from lowering your voice into that guttural range um janet was able to do that observably comfortable for up to six hours at a time and then her voice would switch back so if there is no supernatural engine behind that phenomenon then it's it's a wonder one way or the other. Um, so, some, yeah. At, the, at that point, right where you're at, right here. So, I watched interviews with them earlier. Mm -hmm. um, the actual interviews with the girl. She was doing Oops. the voice and everything. I, I personally practiced it myself. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, how long did go? I, you know, just sat there, kind of mumbled to myself for a good five or six minutes, and I felt, figured, I really honestly felt like I found an area you could do it in that you could just keep doing it, and it wouldn't really bother, and it didn't, I didn't need to move my mouth. It was kind of a ventriloquist-like situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, it could hurt some people's vocal cords. Uh, I don't, I guess she's still alive. So yeah, gentle. Yeah, it's it's not like they've ever dissected her to see if she's got some weird vocal cords that could just handle that. Normal people's couldn't. Mm -hmm. But I want to say the the biggest thing I saw in the interview, one, it seemed like they were a lot of the times reciting lines that had been fed to them, and they were just mm -hmm. saying things that they were told to say. When they were asked pointed questions, both the sisters would grin and smile and try to not look at each other like they were completely faking everything. Mm -hmm. And then the biggest thing for me, the absolute biggest thing for me is that out of, uh, I'm going to say, she said, you know, this isn't a fact, just saying, she said 10 sentences in that voice, right? Mm -hmm. They only were actually looking at her with the camera in one sentence. Every other sentence, the camera was not pointed at her at all. Mm -hmm. So you've got a hoax-ass huckster medium guy mm -hmm. who, yeah, has a six-hour recording, and every five minutes he paused for an hour, and it was recorded over a month. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't be that hard to pull off at all. And then he went off about every, pretty much exactly what you said about the actual you know, physical repercussions of trying to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't have Photoshop. They didn't have advanced technology. They just had a tape recorder with a pause button. Yeah. I felt like it would have been real easy to fake. Mm -hmm. So you're leaning more towards hoax? Uh, you know, I am a skeptic. Mm -hmm. I believe a lot of weird things, but I don't believe them. Uh, it's almost impossible to describe my actual beliefs because I've had some experiences that are 
why I'm the way I am and where I am, but at the same time, I can't reproduce them. I can't make them happen again, no matter how hard I try. Mm-hmm. And most of them, there's some of them that just don't have an easy explanation, but there has to be some sort of exclama- explanation, be, mm-hmm. be it paranormal or not. Mm-hmm. And this just, the whole thing kind of caught me as a medium who was in the day and the time of being able to do this real well. Mm-hmm. Not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that's what I get out of this whole story. That it was fake. Well, 100% fake. There are experiences that go beyond just one explanation. We tend to use that singular term. There has to be an explanation. What's the explanation behind this? There hardly is ever any simple event that can be given one explanation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Several. There's at least several. So, in terms of Enfield, I think that a large portion of them were faked, but I do think that there are additional events which unfortunately are blank, my mind is blanking on, um, that at this point are mm, not yet explained. And I'll leave it at that. Right, right. I'll give you that. Uh, I mean, uh, all of this that I just said, mm-hmm. I think, are things that are easily nailed down and explained by mm-hmm. pretty much what I just said. But there are things that happened, like things coming off the wall, lying mm-hmm. across the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you don't put a string on something and pull it across the room in front of a room full of people. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't always have to be a string. It could be a magnet. So even with even with that hoaxing context, it could have several explanations. It could be this and or it could be that. So here's so, the thing I give the most credit to in this case. Mm-hmm. That is the one reason that I will not... I, I'm not just calling complete bullshit. I think 90% of this is easily explained and was probably faked. But mm-hmm. the one thing that is that missing part of most stories like this is that this family never made any money off of the stories. And they were miserable the whole time. Right. Like, they were legitimately outcasts. They were yep. <laughs> looked down upon, and no one ever gave them a penny of money. And and I think uh, Mom had a, a very hard time securing work, too. And they were poor to begin with. Um, Enfield right. is not a wealthy neighborhood and uh, Janet's mother was a single mom and there were I think three or five of them because I know there was Janet her sister and the brother there may have been two other kids on another floor right. um, so the family was struggling as is they never profited at all they had reporters they had scientists they had investigators on their property or in their house or in front of their house pretty much 24-7, it was like the paparazzi. So you also have to wonder, they're not profiting and they're miserable the whole time. How could this possibly continue? Right, and that's that's where I'm stumped at. Uh, Mm -hmm. If this case made them a penny of money, I'd be like, yeah, 100% bullshit. But Mm -hmm. it didn't. Like, they were poor people that didn't get rich. They only got bad publicity, and that bad publicity didn't get them anywhere. But they still it, never broke the story completely, you know, years later that she did say she had stuff to do with stuff, but uh, that, I, 
I just really feel like that gives it some credit. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Enough not to close the book entirely. Right. Hmm? Well, you got anything else to say about the infields? Um, no, I think, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. You want to move on to, uh, oh goodness, Thornton Heath? Oh, I don't know too much about that one. Okay, the Danny poltergeist? Let's could talk about Danny. Alright, this one, uh, I also just found out about a couple days ago. I didn't really know too much about it. I got a good story for this one to add. Mm -hmm. It's not directly related, but I got a good story for it. <laughs> okay. Alright. Okay. So, uh, to run it down, the Danny Poltergeist was a haunted bed. It was a old antique bed, and when it was purchased, paranormal activity started. Um, mm -hmm. The biggest thing was the first night they left a piece of paper and something to write with and Danny mm -hmm. seven was written next to the piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And then they uh, communicated with Danny as he, uh, this one's almost barely even poltergeist, but it definitely still counts as poltergeist. What, what, what do you know about it? Okay. So with the Danny seven part, they, it was in response to a question who are you and how old are you? And so I think that they had left um, uh, a piece of paper and some crayons. And they left it in the room with all by itself for 15 minutes. And when they came by, when they came back, it said Danny Seven. Right. Um, so it's either someone who the ghost of a child or the ghost who thinks he's a child or a ghost who wants people to think He's a child. Um, he has written a few other things before, which they don't sound like things a seven-year-old would write. They sound something. They sound more like someone who wants them to think he's a seven-year-old would write. Right. So you see, you had said earlier, it was the bed. Um, the the spirit of Danny was attached or was was connected to the bed. Um, and when they asked, what do you want? And they asked with, I think the crayons still. And they said, he wrote, uh, what is it? No one sleep in bed. Yeah. And I, I have a seven year old and he can speak better than that. <laughs> right. If I want someone to think I'm a seven year old, that's how I would say it. Yeah. I, I would, I would break the grammar a little bit but I think that children have, especially at that age, have a have a better understanding of grammar than to drop the S. Right. I mean, um, that's, that's what, second grade? Yeah. 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 I mean, like, I, I have very, very uh, minor memories of being in second grade, but I think I would have said, don't sleep in this bed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's not the only thing he said, but that broken grammar persisted um, when... Um, uh, what is it? Uh, um, mean lady sell bed. That was something else he had written afterwards when they had sold the bed. And like I said, my seven-year-old speaks better English than that. So it's either you know a just uh, it the spirit might be of a seven-year-old, but it also could be someone who wants people to think he's the seven-year-old. Um, he was when I first started learning about this, which. I owe to you. You would send me that link earlier today and I was reading up on it. And when I 
when I'm reading the article and I'm hearing that he's possessive, uh, well, no pun intended, but he's territorial of that bed, um, my first question is, what's the emotional connection he has with it? And then he said later on, Danny had said later on, that his mother had died in that bed. And that's why he wants to, he doesn't want anyone else to sleep in it because he still thought it was, it belonged to her. Um, the boy whose bed, who uh, that the bed was bought for in 1998, um, he wanted to do like a little experiment where he would pretend to be asleep in the bed and he had an object thrown at him. Um, and I think the object was like a terracotta head that had been on the wall. Right. Uh, and it did not hit him. It flew past him, but it was, it. I think it slid into the closet or something like that, but it didn't hit him. And um, I, I have to wonder, was that like a warning shot or what, did the ghost just have bad aim? Um, <laughs> right. It seems like I ghosts mean, almost always have bad aim. They're like stormtroopers. Not... <laughs> <laughs> Stormtroopers had no problem with hitting anyone who's not the heroes. I mean, they <laughs> right. or with the crew. They could the take tans- out a sandcrawler, no problem with position yeah. strikes. But if it's a person, yep. they're never gonna hit it. And the rebel soldiers on the Tantive Four—they killed all of them. It's just the heroes <laughs> that seem to be bulletproof. Um, so, my and there was no poltergeist activity. <laughs> attached or or uh, connected to the bed before 1998 and i think that the the bed they got in the era that danny lived in was i think like the gilded age like the 1890s that's mm-hmm. the gilded age anyway that's the time period that he's from so for about a hundred years the bed is going from person to person and use i can only imagine on a nightly basis but it's not until a century later that this activity starts coming. And when they brought in parapsychologists, they determined that Danny is not a, is is more an extension of psychokinesis on the part of Jason, who the bed was bought for. Right. And that it was actually something an electromagnetic field emanating from the wall. I never found out what was so special about the wall, mm-hmm. but it was the wall that the bed was up against that seemed to have some kind of electromagnetic emanations that was triggering a latent um, uh, psychokinetic ability in him. So for not just Danny, but for, um, what is it, Uncle Sam, yeah. who was another spirit, mm-hmm. Sadie, I think, who claimed to be, who he said, Uncle Sam said that Sadie was his daughter who was murdered and whose body is buried under the house. Um, either they're all projections of Jason, the boy, again, again, the boy who's, who the bed was bought for, they're all projections of him, or that he was merely the conduit that allowed those spirits to come forward. Um, I had a lot of questions in doing this, and like I said, the research is really sparse on it. Mm-hmm. 
much to my chagrin because I had a lot of questions coming from this. Um, and the paranormal activity associated with the bed ended after the bed was sold, but the activity continued centered around Jason. Right, okay, so you also got confused at that point. Well, I wasn't I was like, how did it continue if there wasn't any more paranormal activity after this? I, I was a little fuzzy on what they were talking about at that point. I, I think what they were talking about was that the paranormal activity continued, but it was no longer tethered to the location of the bed. Right. So the reporters followed the bed through auctions, mm-hmm. and they interviewed the people who were buying it, over the next few years and apparently even though there was no ghostly activity associated with the bed it still went through several owners i don't know why but there was nothing haunting about the bed afterwards but it the paranormal activity continued centered around jason which does support the the electromagnetic field triggered some latent psychokinetic ability in jason um, so I had actually meant to mention this earlier and mm-hmm. got sidetracked or something. So as far as poltergeists go, I have a pretty firm belief personally in what I think is poltergeist. And I feel like most of the stories surrounding poltergeist kind of support what I personally believe. Mm-hmm. That it is caused by children with overactive uh, psychic energies in them. Mm-hmm. be it you know whatever you want to call it and they're causing psychokinetic things to happen mm-hmm. and I've, I've kind of always felt that I read a book about it a long long time ago I don't remember the name of it or anything I'm talking like back in high school I read a book about it mm-hmm. and that's I've kind of always followed that theory personally is that poltergeist are caused by children and as they get older it tends to stop happening but right. it seems like always the poltergeist activity is around a younger child Mm -hmm. it only happens when they're there even if it's not happening to them it still happens when the one child is there and i think that it's a vibrational anomaly or whatever you want to call it where or like a stephen king the shining thing you know having Mm -hmm. the having the shine where some kids just their their minds are cause things to happen and they don't even know it it's not their fault they don't understand it it's not outside of they're not it's not on purpose it's not outside of them it's just something that happens because they're in the area Mm -hmm. and it's a super rare thing Mm -hmm. that i guarantee i'll never experience in real life but Mm -hmm. that's kind of that that's been my view on it always is that kids cause it and remember what what I'd said earlier is that a lot of things go beyond just one explanation, but we can go with this. Do you, do you know why children? I know there is, there's one, there's one reason behind it, but I'm asking if you know, I have a personal belief about it. I don't know exactly what you're talking about. Imagination is part of it. Okay, well, all right, so let me say my personal belief because I figure yours is actually a, a, a knowledge-based thing. <laughs> Where mine a little bit is, but not 100%. This is how I've always viewed it. Mm-hmm. As a young child, 
you haven't when you're born you don't know reality reality is kind of told to you by those around you you're mm-hmm. as a little child you're just in fantasy land and imagination land and adults and life and the constructs of civilization kind of close those in on you which is why as you get older your imagination gets smaller and smaller is because you know when you have a job and you have a life and you have a responsibility your imagination just doesn't matter anymore Mm -hmm. and as a child your brain doesn't quite realize its limitations Mm -hmm. and those limitations haven't been set on it by society and culture yet so sometimes it kind of expands outwards and can actually affect reality on some level. That's the most basic way I can describe it without going into it for an hour. <laughs> do you do you remember when was the last time you watched X Men? Brian Singer, two thousand, the very first one, the very first X Men movie. Probably two thousand nine. Okay, okay. One of the things that I think it was Jean Grey who had said. I think it's been a while for me too, but said that the the mutant gene emerges around adolescence, mm-hmm. and the trigger is heightened emotional stress. And it was shown in from the two examples that we saw in that movie, Magneto and Rogue. Magneto, when he was in the concentration camp and he was reaching for his parents and they were being taken away, and Rogue when she was kissing her first boyfriend. Okay. It's not that dissimilar with us. Uh, you figure that it, because it's not just children, it's older women too, for a reason I'll get to in a second, but it has to do with hormonal changes that can even temporarily trigger otherwise latent psychokinetic abilities. Are you, you going of, into a spontaneous human combustion with the older women? <laughs> No, uh, I'm actually thinking more in terms of uh, menopause. Right, but that, you know about spontaneous human combustion, right? I've Yep, I'm that, familiar with it. That's a big theory in spontaneous human combustion. Most of the victims tend to be older women going through menopause. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of exactly what you're saying. And it's like instead of throwing objects around the room because your brain can't handle the strange effects going on in your life, they spontaneously combust. Do you know, I'm, I'm, I'm asking because I don't know, do you know what the rate, annual rate of spontaneous human combustion cases there are a year? Oh, man, like ever? Like one in a hundred years. <laughs> that isn't explained. But, you know, I, huh. I think there's, there's probably 10 to 20 in the last 200 years, I would say. Okay. That are, like, legitimately unexplained. I wouldn't say 20 is probably pushing it in the last 100 years. Well, because I have seen photographs of the after, of, like, the the scene afterwards. Mm -hmm. And what's even weirder is that not the entire, the entire body does not go up. Like, there are body parts left otherwise intact, except for the burns on the outside. Yeah, and one of my, my, uh, but... I've read before exactly what you're talking about, but it's the whole menopause older lady thing. Mm -hmm. And my favorite spontaneous human combustion story ever was actually a a man, a Mm -hmm. middle-aged man that had it happen to him and survived it. Mm -hmm. So that'll be a future episode. (laughs) There's never really a single 
explanation. I'm trying to whittle it down just for the sake of time, trying to whittle it down to the simplest terms, but the the bodies and the brains of children are going through tremendous hormonal changes, and that can somehow affect mm -hmm. um, uh, psychic potential, I guess. Um, and the same thing goes for menopausal women. Right. Absolutely. Um, and of course, children have much more active imaginations, and that could be, I'm, I'm wouldn't be surprised if that was, um, uh, you know, like uh, adding oil in the engine and just making it that much more powerful. Right. So this story happened in Savannah, Georgia. Hmm? So I'm going to tell a little personal story real quick. It's the only, most recent, because this was less than two years ago, paranormal event that happened to me in my life that is easily explained but mm -hmm. I feel like it's still a pretty good story. So I was in Savannah, Georgia for a vacation for a week. <clears throat> we stayed at the Marshall House Hotel, which is, this was on purpose, <laughs> one of the most haunted places in the United States. So I researched that. I found the hotel. It's one of the most ho haunted hotels in the United States. So I, I found the most haunted room in the hotel, mm -hmm. which was the uh, room that the author of Br'er Rabbit can't think mm -hmm. of his name right now, but anyway, it was the room he stayed in and when he was writing Br'er Rabbit and stuff. Previous to that, the room had been used as a Civil War hospital, mm -hmm. and the room was specifically used for amputees. When somebody needed something amputated, the, mm -hmm. where that room is located is where you would be taken to be amputated on. So... <clears throat> It was a beautiful hotel. It's creepy and old, but creepy and old in that just gorgeous kind of way, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't scared. I, I wasn't scared of the hotel at all. That That's always a big thing. If somebody tells me a ghost story, I'm like, well, how scared were you? You know, how much did your brain play into this story happening to begin with? That's my biggest part of this whole story is that I wasn't scared and I wasn't worried about anything and I was completely skeptical and expected nothing to happen whatsoever. So me and my friend, we went out and we had a big fun day, you know, and everything. And we came back pretty late at night and we went to sleep and it was, uh, it was just one king bed and it was me and my friend. We're both sleeping on the bed and everything. And so, uh, Several hours after I went to sleep, I felt someone grab my knee, like, real hard. Mm. Like, really grab my knee. It wasn't just like a... But, it, like, fingers and all. You know what I mean? Like, it, that woke me up. Them grabbing my knee very hard. And then, like, going down my shin, I felt a few more, you know, like, checking pressures going down my chin. My shin. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the hell? What is she doing? And so, like... I opened my eyes and turned because I figured it was just my friend trying to wake me up. And she was, like, hanging halfway off the other side of this gigantic bed, like, six feet away from me, halfway <laughs> in the floor. And I was like, oh, shit, what just happened? That was cool as hell. <laughs> you know, uh, it kind of falls under, was it a dream? Quite possibly. But the initial feeling was what woke me up and, like, I was like, my eyes opened and I saw that it was daylight and everything as I felt the 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 hand go down my leg. Mm -hmm. 
it was just kind of a really cool little ghost experience because of everything. It was supposed to be the most haunted room. It was something that was supposed to happen in the room, but it wasn't something I was expecting to have happen. I thought it was really cool. So just a, just a quick side note. Uh, my wife and I honeymoon in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which is also a huge Civil War battlefield. And very, um, very important, not just for historians, but also for paranormal enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. My wife was planning the wedding, and I asked if we could honeymoon in Gettysburg, and she said, if you want to do it, then you plan it. So I thought, okay, well, that that's basically a yes. I researched the most haunted B&B, and when I called them, I requested the most haunted room at the inn. Yeah, that's what I did where I was. I figured, which I figured, that's usually, that sounds like how horror movies start. <laughs> right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's what happened. And, um, oh, um, excuse me for it. Can you pause the recording for a second? Yeah. You can talk. Now we are. Okay. So, yeah, that's usually how, um, usually how horror movies start. You requested the most haunted room at the end. So let me ask you, yours was the hotel where they did amputations. Mm-hmm. On, uh, uh, sorry, just a geography question. How, what, what, in what proximity was Shiloh to you, where you were? Shiloh? What's Shiloh? Yeah, Shiloh, uh, Georgia. I don't even know where Shiloh, Georgia is. What city is, okay, I'm getting it confused with another state. Shiloh was the, it was the location of the bloodiest battle of the Shiloh. Civil War. Yeah, I, the battle of Shiloh. Is that in Georgia? I don't think so. I don't Maybe. think, one. Turn my phone off. Battle of Shiloh, Pittsburgh Landing, Tennessee. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, never mind then. <laughs> so you were in, you were in a hotel that did the amputations. Was the room you were staying in one of the surgery rooms? Yeah, that was that was the point. The uh, the the hotel had been a Civil War hospital, and the room that I was staying in was specifically the room that they did amputations in. Mm at the hospital and then years later the author of the Br'er Rabbit that was his like he had rented that room out for years like only he stayed there <laughs> it was like his room which was so so the room was supposedly haunted by ghosts of the Civil War and the ghost of the author mm-hmm. well and probably the ghosts of the the doctors who performed the surgeries you know yeah yeah, yeah. Y- you know what you know what anesthetic they had then uh, nothing bite on those <laughs> or opium no that they i mean they they might have had opium but right. for surgeries i mean for that it was take a quick swig of whiskey and put a a, a musket <laughs> in your mouth yeah, yeah hence yeah. bite the bullet right um but the the patients were otherwise awake alert no painkillers no anesthetics they were could you just imagine the energy that would be imprinted on the walls if that's what's going on in the room all the time? Right, absolutely, yeah. So when you you said that you Residual felt... Residual energy, like, that is the most... I mean, uh, there's few places in the world where I could imagine residual energy should exist more than right there where it did. And then having a famous... It was Joel Chandler Harris's room. Okay. He wrote Uncle Remus and his songs. 
it was songs of the south stuff it was super ultra racist stuff from long long ago oh yeah <laughs> so it sounds like you had um a doctor come and check on you yeah man that's uh that's kind of what it boils down to like it was the residual energy of a civil war doctor doing his job and checking the leg of his patient that was probably play, laying in the exact same place that I was laying. And he saw you were okay? Was that the only time he touched you? Yeah, that was it, man. It was just, it was that, that hard grab at the knee and then a uh -huh. couple more grabs, you know, just like fills going down. And like, I woke up at the hard grab at the knee and my eyes were open and mm -hmm. nothing was there at all as I felt it go down my leg a little bit and kind of got softer each touch, and then that was it. So he was checking your legs, and he saw you were okay, so he moved on? Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it felt like a full residual energy haunting type of situation. There was no manifestation or anything like that. There's two explanations. I dreamed it, or it happened, and if it happened, it had to have been a residual energy. Mm-hmm. On residual energy is the kind of like um, like a DVD on infinite replay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where it, there's the cycle to it. Right. Um, it's non-intelligent. It's not. It's not trying to do anything. It doesn't have a. It doesn't have a purpose. It's just replaying what has happened in the past so many times. Type of. Except situation. that this he touched you. Yeah, he reached yeah. out and touched you um it might be a ghost and that's the only way he knows how to get in touch with people that's the only that's the only connection he has to this world that's the only thing he knows i think that if it was a residual residual hauntings kind of happen by themselves there's very little if none interact no interaction with um with people like they don't even they're not even aware of us Right. They're on the replay loop. Um, right. And it might have been, you might have been caught, or rather, actually, I should say your knees and your shins might have been in the exact needed spot at the exact needed time. And that's that's how I feel about That's what I think happened. I think it was a residual energy situation, and I just happened to be laying right where patients used to lay. You got to love experiences like that, that just bring into question everything you thought you knew before. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't scary. I, I mean, even I woke up, I was confused because I was like, <laughs> why why was, why was is my friend fucking with me? Yeah. <laughs> was what I originally thought that I was like, she is passed out. It's just me and her, but someone legitimately yeah. just grabbed my knee and then I was like, wait, that's exactly what's supposed to happen to you in this room. Like, there's multiple stories of this exact same thing happening to people in this room mm -hmm. uh, yeah uh, money well spent on that hotel room i guess <laughs> oh and if i was there if i was there with if i was there sharing a bed with someone hello okay i made a i made a terrible attempt at humor yeah well i missed half of it because you cut out <laughs> okay well, let's just let's just move on, and and we'll just pretend it was life-changingly hysterical. Oh yeah, that was the funniest thing I've ever heard, Philip. What's I next? know, yeah. And <laughs> I got a mil, I got a million of them. Don't worry, and don't forget to tip your waiter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, dude, I got a split in a few minutes. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? 
I think uh, I think we're good, man. We've uh, hey. we've gently covered poltergeists. Gently. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight. Been such an honor to be here, truly. <laughs> First episode of Secret Knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ho hopefully, I'll have you back on again, at least for an interview, if not for another episode in the future. I hope so too. Yes, yes. All right. All right, man. You have a good night. All right. Good night, everyone. Good night. <laughs> Welcome to an interview with an interesting person. Tonight we have Mr. Bobby Creech of the Devon Serpent Chapter of the Ordo Templi Orentis. Hey, everybody. Or, or, or should I should I make it official? Do it. That will show be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under <laughs> Hey, what's going on? So that just got super spooky. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Mr. Bobby Creech. Yes, sir. I have some questions for you tonight. All right. I only have a couple. We've also, like, legitimately been talking for, like, Good hour 45 now. minutes or something yeah <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Something. before we hit record yeah, yeah. we were so we're, we're gonna, gabbing we're gonna legitimately start this interview so bobby mm -hmm. what got you into the occult to begin with oh man i i, I figured you were gonna ask me how i i got into Thelema or that's or the second how I, question or or that's how how i got introduced to to alistair crowley's yeah. but but the that's question two just what oh, got man. you interested to lead you to the occult or alistair crowley to begin with so that that's a tough question i'm uh, i'm not really sure that there i can't remember a time where i wasn't interested in or not exposed to it right so um growing up it was ghost stories and and my parents watching you know ufo documentaries and um unsolved mysteries and things like that so just from a very young age you know just always been um exposed to it not not real hardcore occult stuff but definitely um, kind of soft um, introductions into the cult were always there from a very young age for me. All right, so let's uh, expound on that. And what was it that brought you to Crowley in particular? So Crowley, right? Um, so my older brother was into um, uh, into strange stuff, and I would periodically sneak into his room, you know, um, being a, a younger brother that idolized his older brother. And I would go and pick through whatever new things that he'd brought in and be like, ooh, what's this, right? So I'd, I'd wind up reading um, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, uh, modern primitives, um, you know, uh, the satanic Bible, lots and lots of science fiction. And my brother had this comic book that was the story of Led Zeppelin. And, and, and they would have, you know, little vignettes about each of the, the band members. And whenever it was a portion about Jimmy Page, it would just be him like looking off into the distance or like, you know, 
uh, staring at the Stella revealing, and then it would be an Aleister Crowley quote. <laughs> Which he apparently and, now doesn't remember ever doing. He kind of goes back and forth from what I understand. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that like, Led Zeppelin, specifically this comic book uh, telling of the history of Led Zeppelin was one of my first introductions to like Crowley's writings. You know, somebody had gone through and cherry picked things from Crowley's writings and put it over a cartoon, a comic book uh, rendition of Jimmy Page. Um, and I also would just, you know, when I was in grade school, I would go sit in the library and read Man, Myth and Magic, the Time Life mystery books, you know, like the kind of encyclopedias of, of weirdness and strange things. I would just read through those. So, you know, it would usually start off with, you know, some some cryptozoological animal that started with the letter A, and then it would be Madame Blavatsky, and then Aleister Crowley, and so yeah, those were those were my first introductions to Crowley. Let's, were the let's never the, forget Lorraine Warren. Warren. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right. She yeah. was in those books, a hundred percent. I forgot about that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> occasionally I would start at the other end, but most of the time I'd start at A and then work my way through but occasionally i'd start at z and yeah 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 yeah. the warrens <laughs> so you are a um i'm not even sure how to put it correctly but you're a high-ranking member in the dove and serpent of the oto in atlanta georgia correct correct yeah, so I've been, um, the, the official title is Deputy Body Master. It's kind of um, second in charge. Okay. <clears throat> it's more of a, it's an administrative title, I guess. Um, it just, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking of how I always have to explain this to um, pagan and Wiccan friends. They're like, so you're like the high priest or something. I'm like, no. Right, so that's where I'm going with my next question. Okay, okay. How would you describe being someone high-ranking in Thelema and the OTO? Um, oof. Well, I think it's uh, two parts administrator. Um, <laughs> one part uh, retail manager, <laughs> one part uh, you know crisis counselor and, and salesman, uh, and 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 one part salesman as as we were discussing earlier. So right. it's 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 a lot of different things. Like I'll <clears throat> I'll go and talk to people, um, you know, when they're having you know just normal life crises, and kind of going and fulfilling the role that you know. Um, uh, you know, I, I grew up Methodist, right? So I'm, I'm going and fulfilling a similar role to like a, um, uh, the, the ministers there at the church that I grew up in, of just listening to people talk about their their problems, um, providing them some sort of guidance and just you know an ear um, when when they're going through things, um, handling paperwork, scheduling uh, events, um, oh, going and and getting communications from higher up from our national organization, um, the U.S. Grand Lodge of uh, OTO, making sure paperwork's taken care of, um, coming up with new projects. So uh, over the past three years, we've made sure to have a booth at 
pagan pride and Atlanta, you know, LGBT pride. Um, and we're, we're, we're looking for, uh, new ways to go and do outreach or, you know, the, the, the term in inside of Thelema is promulgation. You guys should uh, do Dragon and, Con. 100%. I've heard people say that many times. Right, I, because it's I, true. I don't think it's the right avenue. Um, for it, it's it's expensive. It's a it is, cause. Yeah. It's it's a cosplay science fiction fantasy convention, and I'm not sure that that's the way that we. I, I'm not sure that's the 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 market that we need to be in going and competing with other people for their attention when there's panels on uh, Klingon opera, you know, right around the corner or uh, your latest favorite anime or whatever. But how um, better or, or a to get somebody building. interested in something they don't know about? I, I, I think that there's a, a lot of different ways that we could go and do that. And I've heard the argument that we should go to Dragon Con and I don't think that it's a bad idea but we have you know just limited resources and i think that there are better avenues that we um have more successful outreach through currently and just once we you know once we get a little bit more money in the budget and have a little bit more manpower we may go and look at at, at doing dragon con and other similar um anime conventions because there's there is a lot of crossover um, between, with the example of, of, of anime, there's a lot of crossover between anime and the occult over the past 10 years. Um, a lot of anime has, has focused in on Solomonic magic, occasionally on Thelema, occasionally on the Book of the Law, um, specifically, and, and Alistair Crowley. Lots of, lots of animes where uh, uh, various different goetic demons are turned yeah. into characters that you know are having um romances and dramas not to, so i not to downplay it at all but i feel like full metal alchemist uh fans might be very interested mm -hmm. all right so uh bobby i'm gonna ask you a couple of hard questions here well, okay can you describe the lima yes this is so I work on my, my elevator pitch pretty frequently. Um, and I think a lot of people do get intimidated by this question. Right, I do. When I tell people I'm a Thelemite, and they're like, well, explain it to me. I'm just, I straight up, I'm like, uh, I can uh, reference you some resources, but I don't feel qualified to answer that actual question. Okay, so Thelema is a new modern syncretic religious movement. Um, some people go and call uh, look at it as a philosophy and it's based around um, the writings of Aleister Crowley. He was this English poet and mountaineer from the <laughs> yeah. early 20th century. And it focuses in around two phrases, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And love is the law, love and her will. And I take those as meaning I need to go and find my purpose in life, to go and define that for myself, 
and that and that while I'm doing that, I needed to be guided. I need to be guided by love. But here is here is something that I think is important to go and point out. The phrase is not "I will do what thou wilt shall be the whole law." It's "do what thou wilt." So it's it's just to me, it's important to go and make this distinction that when I say it, I'm going and making the recognition that you, Dana, and and anyone else I'm I'm interacting with that everyone has the right to go and live their life as they so choose and that whatever their purpose in life is, they have the right to go and define that. So that I mean that that's how I see it. To try and just kind of keep it simple, not overcomplicate it and use a bunch of mystical occult terms and jargon or get lost in talking about the backstory of the book of the law or Alistair Crowley's colorful and racy life. Um, I mean, I, I, I like provide, you know, some insight on, on, on the, you know, tiny little things within Thelema. But if I had to go and boil it down, it's about finding your purpose in life, recognizing that you have the right to go and define that for yourself and that you should have that be balanced by love all right so let me ask you the second question that's a little harder than that last one okay would alistair crowley if he were alive Mm -hmm. right now would Uh he fit in with the world at all oh um so alistair crowley was a very colorful and interesting figure and in some ways right so i i think that in many ways he he would fit in to the world now and i but i also think that he would be shocked by it in some ways um i know that i've read um quite a bit of his writings and you know read some of his correspondence he had with other people and diaries and things like that and he complained about the teenagers of his own day and age. Um, and, you know, uh, when he was getting up in years in the 1940s, I remember reading a letter he, he had back and forth, I think with um, one of his peoples out in California, uh, Grady McMurtry. And he was mm-hmm. complaining about the, the teenagers of the day and the, and the, the terrible music they were listening to. In magic um, without tears. Right. Maybe I can't. I can't remember exactly what book it was. Yeah, I but, think that's the uh, correspondence. And if you want to learn something, it was my first. That was my starting. Was Magic Without Tears by Alistair Crowley. Right. That's that is a very good one to start with. Uh, but th- th- so there, there, there's plenty of his viewpoints that um we can go and, and see them as being very harmonious with a conservative worldview at times. This idea of being kind of a self-made man, of holding oneself uh, responsible for your own actions, of testing yourself. Um, this very like English gentleman idea of, you know, my word is my bond and, and, and I, am, I will be good to my word, even though he didn't always live Yes, he, he periodically would go and write on social concerns and political ideas that he had. And, well, it frequently would be kind of this weird mixture of very libertarian ideas 
and very socialist ideas at the same time. He he thought that traffic lights should be done away with that that um, need to be laws going and restricting people um, from business and things like that. But when it came to things like uh, health services, he he thought that that needed to be. I don't remember him ever going and describing it as an as a right, but I, I you know I, I do remember him going and writing down at points that um, any government worth its salt needed to go and implement it to go and and maintain the welfare of its people. So <laughs> he he uh, his his ideas around sexuality and around um, gender, at least for the time, were very progressive. They were um, super progressive before the yeah. time. Yeah. Um, they were almost modern. Almost, yeah. I, I, I definitely see that, that he was a forerunner in many things. You know, uh, when he was in college, his boyfriend was um, was a drag queen. And uh, he, at points, um, explored some some form of, of uh, gender bending. Um, uh, I, I don't know how much he uh, identified with, with being a woman, with... with uh, Going cross dressing. That's uh, or, or am, am I using outdated language now? Right. <laughs> um, yeah. the, the, we're, we're in we're in a time where these ideas are just around um, gender, sex, uh, sexuality. So quickly, um, I know that I can't keep up with all of the language around it, um, and yeah, I, I, I do my best. Um, so if anybody's listening and, and and is bothered by the terms I'm using, I'm I'm trying. <laughs> I mean, I'm certainly willing to go and hear people out. They are. Uh, I mean, he was around in oh almost a hundred years ago now. Let's see. He died in 1947, I believe. Yeah, like his uh, prime was about a hundred years ago now, and a hundred years from now, you can't think that some of the things that you think and say, no matter how sure you are about them, won't change in a hundred <clears throat> years. Right, right. No, and uh, th there are some people that feel, um, and this is not just about Crowley, this is, you know, many, many historical figures when we go and look back on the language that they used in their writings um, you know going and being an apologist for them be, uh, by saying that they were a product of their time and Lovecraft I, is a great example of that right right uh, and I, so uh, Raymond Buckland um, uh, a seminal figure in witchcraft in, in modern witchcraft uh, died recently um, just a few years ago, and I'm I'm going to be traveling out to Cleveland, and I'm very excited to go and see the museum. But I know that, oh, I think it was like four or five years ago, he made uh, a handful of pronouncements when he was being interviewed for, I, I don't even remember what now, but he, he made a, a handful of statements about uh, the practice of cursing, uh, uh, hexes, and made a handful of statements around bisexuality and I I worked myself up into a rage for at least a day. Um, that would be and, the 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 founder of Wicca. 
Raymond Buckland, he, like, he might not be 100% the founder of Wicca, but he's the uh, driving force of what Wicca is today. He, he was one of the people, right? Yeah, right. He, he, he wrote this very influential book called, um, oh, what is it called? I'd have to look at the, it's, it's the big blue book, Buckland's big blue book. Yeah. I know that I know that's not the title of it, but that's that's what most everybody refers to it, or some variation of that refers to it as. If you're um, interested, Bu- Buckland's in, Guide to Witchcraft. Right. If you're interested in Wicca, you know what that is. Right. But what I'm saying is, is that um, people that are pioneers, trailblazers, I, I, I think that um, if they have their faults, if they said something that certainly. 50, 60, 70, 100 years later, we go and say that is incorrect or or bigoted or small-minded. <clears throat> we don't need to go and completely get rid of their legacy. We don't need to go and lose sight of everything else that they may have said or done. I think that we need to work to go and keep context and not adopt an all-or-nothing attitude about uh, historical figures. I would say Scott Cunningham, which is the most popular Wiccan writer. Right. He got what he said from Buckland. Um, I would have to go and look that up. I, If I remember correctly, Scott Cunningham was self-initiated for the vast majority of his time as a um, practitioner identifying as a a Wiccan or a witch. Um, Right. Yeah, I agree. But but I'd I'd have to go look that up to be sure. Uh, So Scott Cunningham, yes, I I think you're 100% right, but he wrote his things based on Buckland's writing. Mm. Which were based on Carly's writings. <laughs> well, uh, I, you're skipping a step, but I'm but but I'm yes, being I am. By saying that, absolutely, I am skipping a step. The, 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 so there's Gerald Gardner that you're yeah that you're like okay. well and and yeah, and uh, right Alexander Saunders yeah that, yeah. British traditional witchcraft. I know enough about it to be really wrong about a whole bunch of things. And I am not in any way denying the legitimacy of anything that we're talking about. But mm. They are uh, kind of branched <clears throat> off from things Crowley said. Way I, way I am in interested. I'm, inter- I'm always interested and fascinated how... Thelema, as I see it, Thelema and the modern pagan movement, they're, they're different things, but they're definitely interconnected very, very often. Okay. Alistair Crowley and Gerald Gardner mm-hmm. worked together. Gerald Gardner was a member of the OTO. Right. Um, uh, uh, there was quite a bit of OTO material and polemic material that influenced um, the early versions of Wicca Mm -hmm. um, and that various different people throughout the modern pagan movement um, be that Wiccans, Druids um, you know uh, heathens 
they've 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 interacted with other thelemites they've been they've they've at least taken um the introductory degree into the oto which is the largest organization dedicated to the lima all um, right bobby i'm gonna ask you the hardest question possible right now okay okay and i I, I'm going to say, just to start off, that I'm probably going to agree with your answer. Do you feel like Crowley would just be Trump right now? Right? I just fucking threw you a loop. I know this is a hard question. Wait, now, <laughs> what was the question again? Do you would feel Alistair Crowley... like Aleister Crowley... If he were alive right now, you know, and I know, good and goddamn well, Aleister Crowley would have fucking been a con artist and fucking hosted ten different reality shows. Could Crowley be Trump right now? Ah, that is I know tough... this is a hard question, and I'm not trying to be a dick, and I'm not trying to fucking. How do you feel about that question? Would Aleister Crowley be Donald Trump if he were alive right now? Mm, no. <laughs> Wouldn't he? Though? Um, no, no, I don't. I, I don't. I don't think so. Right. I don't so... either. But I'm just saying, it seems like there are correlations that make sense. Mm, I'm not sure where you're going with that. But so, so Alistair Crowley right. managed to interact with a lot of artists and big thinkers of his time, right? Mm -hmm. And he tried his hand at being a uh, performance troupe promoter which is how he met um, the, the head of the OTO, uh, Theodore Royce. Um, but I, I, I don't, I, th I think that he was really good at going and getting attention, but I'm not sure that he was always very effective at being a self-promoter. He, he believed that there was no such thing as bad press. And well, right. let's, let, let, let's, let's look at the Helsinki summit that just happened the other day. Wow. So there is such thing as bad press. So if you want to bury babies in your front yard to fucking please God and don't want to say that that's wrong, which Crowley did, correct? Uh, so I, I know Crowley made lots of jokes about killing babies, but that was his um, that was him making a <laughs> masturbation <laughs> joke. Um, he, ironically enough, um, I, or it, ironically, it, I always find it funny that Crowley was pro-life. Um, so would he be Trump? I, what, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that Crowley came from money, right? And he managed to go and never spend his money well because he was putting it into some new avenue, some new writing project, um, he had to go and buy some big house. He had to go and get the next uh, volume of the Equinox put out in, uh, and spare no expense doing it. I, I think that uh, people like Trump um, are more savvy than Crowley was in going and 
navigating um, the media. So now it's reality TV, YouTube, memes, right? GIFs. <laughs> what what next? Th- what what next? <laughs> little you know, five seconds of of film, or what, what clever little thing you know. Uh, is oh, going to get turned uh, into a meme. I, that I, I think... little thing is the space force. Because <laughs> we're going to that... fucking go to space and fucking right. relieve I, us I, all of. I, I think that Trump is, you know, and... kind of savvy and going and handling those things. And Trump uh, occasionally portrays himself as a self made man, but he came from money. And whatever I may think of him, he did manage to go and um, keep it going. Um, so did Crowley. Right. The, the <laughs> right. myth around Crowley being a, a destitute uh, drug addict yeah, alone addict. Uh, yeah. is not entirely correct. He managed to go and leave money behind and bequeath it to the OTO. Um <laughs> And he uh, battled back and forth with with uh, substance abuse at various points in his life. And he, uh, I, within the last few years of his life, he made sure that he wanted to be off of, of heroin, which I don't know, you know, I always feel uh, compelled to go and mention that he was being prescribed heroin to go and deal with his asthma. Right, but I mean, this is something that was over a hundred years ago. Yeah, but it's also, I think, worth mentioning as well that plenty of people nowadays go and get prescribed opioids, and it's for a perfectly legitimate reason, and then it turns into an addiction later on. Yeah, it does. Um, So, going and describing Crowley as just some sort of uh, black magician drug addict who died alone that's that's a myth that's it's not it's not true <laughs> so i would like to point out the fact that crowley being associated with satanism in any way is a fucking myth and also crowley being associated with any kind of drug addiction is a complete myth um I don't know if that's. I don't know if either of those are, are fair to say. So, right. was he associated with the Church of Satan and modern Satanism? No, but that, is... that what you just said needs to be broken down into Levian Satanism right. and anything else. <clears throat> uh, but Crowley was definitely obsessed with the figure of, of Satan. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he, and. Well, no, he, he said at one point that he would want to go and be Satan's uh, personal secretary, um, be his head general, something to that effect. I know it's in 777. Yeah. Uh, and, and he repeated things along those lines throughout his life. I, I think that um, when I talk about Philema, people want to know if it's theistic or not. And... Um, or, or, or if, if as a Thelemite, I believe in gods or believe in God, period, you know, uh, Yahweh or whatever, or monotheism. And personally, I do believe in gods, but I don't think that that has anything to do specifically with being a Thelemite. I, 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 I think 
being a Satanist or um, being a Thelemite or whatever. It, 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 it's about going and finding purpose and that being kind of one's religious pursuit. And it's... whether or not you believe in gods is kind of just what lens you see that pursuit through. It would not be impossible to be a Christian and a Thelemite. It doesn't make sense to me, but I know them. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, it and, doesn't and more... make sense at all, but they exist. Well, no, what I, what, uh, if they're pursuing their will and they see that through the lens of Jesus Christ, that's their will to go and pursue, and it's not any of my business. And, uh, well, I mean, the best thing I can say about that is no one's going to look down on you. <laughs> But mm -hmm. it doesn't exactly coincide, <laughs> right? Um, and and I, I think that Crowley battled with substance abuse at various right. points in his life. I mean, we have um, his time period in, in um, the Abbey of Thelema in Cefalu, Sicily, and his... Uh, let's see, he wrote Diary of a Drug Fiend during that time period, um, and he was kind of bouncing back and forth between cocaine and heroin, mm -hmm. and he, he did he did write uh, a diary specifically on him trying to go through withdrawals during that time period and, and how it left knowledge, him feeling very defeated. The knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel. Uh, this would have been... At least according to him, that would have been after that time period. So, uh, and the uh, the right of having Babylon, right? No, so, I, I know nothing. I'm just shooting shit out here. As far it, as this is concerned, Crowley's Crowley's um, complicated relationship with mind altering substances. Um, is something that that I, I'm I'm very interested in, and when people go and um, say that he wasn't a drug addict, I'm like, okay, well, have you read The Fountain of Hyacinth? Right. You know, or uh, the you know um, books within Thelema, within um, the teachings of Thelema, they're numbered as Lieber you know, 127 or something. Mm -hmm. um, the Fountain of Hyacinth is Lever 18. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a record of him going and battling with withdrawal and it leaving him feeling defeated. Um, so, and I don't think it's as simple as, you know, he was a drug addict or whatever. Or I, or I, I don't even think that we really fully understand addiction so to go and look back on what crowley did um and and what his relationship with with uh mind-altering substances was it's complicated right yeah that's that, I, mean, the, the, that's I guess that's what i would say that's the best thing i think you can say is it's complicated the whole experience with anything like that is a complicated experience yeah yeah uh, but he he was a big proponent of people going and 
using them as tools to go and explore their own mind, their own psyches. And I do think that that is useful. I, I think, you know, some the things that he outlined on how to go and approach that, I, I, I do think that those are useful. I think they're very valuable. They are. Yeah, you talked about um, using mescaline, ether, marijuana, and, and seeing them as a, as a sacrament and then going and exploring how it changed one's perceptions of the world and, and going and documenting it and then afterwards going and, and reviewing that, those, those records. 